Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for being back and the opportunity to share with one another and ask you to just guide and lead us as we look at this section of Scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto your hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And you shall encompass the city, all the men of, of war, and go around the city once. Thus shall you do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and, seven, and the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend, ascend every man straight before him. So we're going to look at this uh, as we go along. If you remember, we've got um, the Israelites have crossed the Red, uh, the Red Sea, the Jordan. The, the Jordan was separated into two parts, uh, just as the Red Sea was. It mounted up further upstream, and they walked across on dry, wa dry land just as their, their fathers did when their grandfathers did when they exited uh, Egypt. And, and if you remember, the very first thing they did when they got across the Jordan was Instead of going right into battle, they circumcised all the males and made them not able to fight. Uh, you know, you know, you're coming in in victory, and you immediately make your 600,000-man army incapacitated. <laughs> you know, I just think it's a funny thing to do. I mean, only God would have this kind of sense of humor. And we talked uh, two weeks ago about Joshua going out. He's very nervous. I mean, he's leading the people into their pro into the promised land. And who does he meet? The angel of the host of the, of the Lord or Jesus, as we talked about two weeks ago. And now we've, we see Jericho, it says, is straightly shut up. None go in and none go out. They have locked up Jericho, as we would say, tighter than a drum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nobody's in, nobody's out. He doesn't want any of his people escaping. He doesn't want any, people, any of his people uh, going to the other side. And he's not letting anybody in no matter what. And God looks at him and says, see, I have given you this city. They're already afraid of you. Now, and you know, we've got to understand ourselves. As we go into battle for God, Satan and the demons are afraid of us. They are not, they have no desire to go to battle with us because who are they battling? Not us. They're battling with the Holy Spirit because we bring the Holy Spirit into everything. And we have the victory. All we have to know is that we have the victory. So often we sit back and say, you know, I'm so afraid. No, everything's going wrong. I can't win. Well, you're right. I can't win, but God in me can win. God in me will win every battle. And this is important. Uh, Sunday morning I was listening to, at the church that we went to, they were praying for this guy to get healed. And some of the things they were saying were just so crazy. And I'm thinking, well, why don't one of you just come up and say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. The guy wants to be prayed for and healed. Make it simple. And, you know, they were all kinds of crazy things being said over this guy. And it's like, you know, just be simple. And that's what we need to do as Christians is just be simple. If we want somebody to be healed, just pray in Jesus' name for their healing. You don't have to go into long-winded expressions if you... You know, if you're going to do spiritual battle, you go into nice, just straightforward 
This is what we're doing. Uh, we will go out and pass out the tracks when we go soul winning. We pass out a track. What is it? It's a track. You know, it tells you about the gospel of Jesus. You know, it's, you know, tell them what it is they're getting. You know, when we pass out the bags on, during the parade, you know, I, people go, what's in it? I go, well, it's got a New Testament, you know, information about the church and, and uh, some candy. Up front, if they don't want it, that's fine. I'm not going to be upset that they didn't take it. I'm not going to be, you know. But we need to learn just to be straight up. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And, and we're just loving God. When we go into these battles for God, we just say, this is what we're doing. And when we get into the word, we just keep it simple. God's word is so simple and so wonderful. Now, I love studying his word and teaching people to study his word because the very first rule of studying God's word is if it makes sense and it's plain sense, don't seek any other sense. You know, and you know, read what it says and don't try to spiritualize it and make it into something else. You know, when you start spiritualizing the Bible, you can make the Bible say just about anything you want to make it say. You know, 140,000 Jews in the, in the tribulation period, there's so many people that want to say that they're not Jews. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses are the worst, but there's other groups that say the same thing. The Bible very clearly says that there are 12,000 Jews from each tribe, very specifically. So you know what I'm going to tell you? It's 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. <laughs> Just like the Bible says. Okay, you know, so we look at this, and as we look at these things, we want to say, is what it says true? You know, when it says that Jericho was shut up, I'm going to believe that Jericho was shut up. Now, you know, I, was, I did some research trying to figure out how big Jericho was. And because uh, I was kind of curious about this, walking around the, the city, you know, so many times. And most people believe that it's somewhere between five to ten acres of land. Not a very big city. Now, in that day, it was a pretty good-sized city, but, I mean, it, it wasn't... It wasn't a metropolis. It wasn't like trying to go out and, and march around Phoenix. <laughs> it wasn't like trying to march even around Kingman. You know, maybe, maybe we could, huh? How big was it? About ten to, uh, five to ten acres. It would be like marching. Actually, exactly. It's actually smaller than marching around this town. This is a mile. This is a mile around, and it's a mile all the way around ten acres, if it's a square. Uh, or a half mile, half mile or a mile, depending on whether it's square or circle. So this is how big a town it was. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge place. It, it was about, the half, about half the size of chloride. All right? So we're not talking about a huge city. So when we think about Jericho, it's one of the big cities in their area, but it's not what we normally think of as a city. All right? But we've also got to remember back then, you know, you know, you had your, your, your buildings, your big buildings and stuff, and you had a good population there. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in Nineveh where it took two days to cross Nineveh, and that was to cut straight across. That wasn't to go around it. Wall of China. Yeah, not a wall of China. But the wall was a pretty good-sized wall. I mean, it's not, also, it's not an insignificant city either. Because from what I've been able to tell, the walls were six to eight feet thick. Okay, this was not an insignificant city. It was not some minor thing that you were going to just knock down. And so the king of Jericho thought he was safe. And what are these, Jew, what are these Israelites out there going to do? I'm not in fear of them at all. They had a spring inside the town. They were not worried about it. He was well, well provisioned. And he was pretty sure that help would come before his city would get into trouble. Because in those days, when, and even up until about medieval days, the way you conquered a walled city is you encircled it and you laid siege to it. 
And within three or four years, it would fall <laughs> to hunger. You, know, you want to talk about a long battle. <laughs> this is just for one city. You circled the city and hoped that maybe they would really get hungry fast, you know. But if they had water, you pretty much, it was almost impossible to take them. And if they were well stored with foods or had places where they could grow food in the city, it would be very hard to take the city out. And so the king of Jericho thinks, okay, I'm all set. You know, my, my other kings will come and help me if, when, if they besiege me. And, you know, they, they don't have all the fighting equipment. So he is hidden himself in and God says, you know, look, Joshua, the city is yours. They're afraid of you. They are afraid of you. And it says, you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go around about the city once, and you shall, go, and you sh you shall do this for six days. So they were to march around the city. So you figure, even if we say it's a mile, <laughs> mile which is more than, more than 10 acres by far, how long does it take to walk a mile? Depends on your speed, but you know, these guys are in shape. They're, they're an army. They probably, probably walked around the city in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know. Uh, they weren't running. You know, a nice march that just took them couple of, you know, half hour, let's say half hour in the longest, you know, and, and they were done for the day. And there was how many, so, how many of them? The army of the Israelites was 600, roughly 660,000 men, if they, if they put all of them, all of them to battle. I was going to say, because if they marched around that town, that Yeah, the, the, the first ones, the first ones were ending before the first one, before the next ones were even leaving, Yes. I've also I thought about that when they were marching around in the wilderness. Uh, you know, by the time you, you only marched uh, 10 to 15 miles you know, on a normal day and with animals and everything, they couldn't have done anything more than 15 max. You know, trying to move that many people, three and a half million people, the first ones are leaving and setting up camp before the other ones are basically even left the other camp and they're stretched out. You know, think about this, some of the pictures we've seen of the evacuations recently with the hurricanes where you know millions of people are st stuffed in the interstates and all they show is this picture of the you know road you know a parking lot on the interstate for for miles and miles and miles and this was the jewish people wandering in the wilderness even if they were six eight ten twelve you know you know even if they were going 20 across you know 30 million you know, three and a half million people is a lot of people to move and god feeding them every day until they get into the promised land now, we don't know that all 660,000 of them marched around Jericho. You know, because again, that's a lot of people in around a small town. And so it's possible that they didn't send everybody. When they go to fight AI, they say, well, we don't need everybody. You don't, we only need about 10,000 people to take AI because it's so small. So it could be that they put 60 or 80,000 people against Jericho. Most armies do not deploy their entire army <laughs> on any one target. And so I kind of doubt that all 660,000 know, Israelites were marching around the city. Uh, but this was a significant battle, so a good, good chunk of them probably were. And it says each day they went out and did this. So they marched around about a half hour and came back. Now can you imagine if you're one of the people of Jericho, You've already heard what God, what their God, you've seen what their God did to, the, to your defenses in the spring. The river's at flood stage and all of a sudden it disappears so they can cross the river. Now that's got to freak you out in and of itself. Now our flood stage river stopped flowing long enough for them to cross on dry land, not mud. 
Okay, you know what they have done to to the kings on the other side of the of the of the Jordan. They've destroyed Ammon. They've destroyed. Uh, uh, yeah. Am, Amram, you know, and conquered them. And these are really big countries. These are not insignificant kings. You also know that if they have not been defeated at all in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, you know that God split the Red Sea for them, which is a great miracle. And it's, you know, again, that's 40 years previous, so it's kind of distant. But now you've just seen the Jordan get, get dried up, so now you're remembering all the stories of the Red Sea, which you thought were myths. May, all of a sudden you're going, well, maybe they are right. And you remember back what happened to, Israel, uh, to Egypt and how Israel, Egypt was destroyed as they came out. And here are these people standing outside your city. And their big game plan is to march around your city each day. You know, they're probably looking at them going, boy, we don't know what's going on, but this God is sure crazy. They're, you know, we're, we're, they're worried about God, but they're kind of probably thinking the people are nuts. You know, their plan is to march their army around our city. You know, what are they going to do, shake us, shake us up? <laughs> uh, and, you know, they probably were giving taunts, you know, to them, you know, especially on about the sixth day. You know, what's, what's wrong with you crazy people? You know, because normally this, the army would circle around the city and just stand there so nobody came in or out and made sure no supplies got in. And that's not what they did. They didn't run it. They didn't shoot it with with uh, catapults sending rocks in. They didn't shoot arrows into it. They didn't run up to it with ladders. They didn't build massive siege engines or a battering ram. All they did was march around the city. How did they keep them getting killed? Huh? They just marched the Either the people are too, too afraid or they didn't have enough art, uh, arrows, possibly. And <clears throat> how do you know? You got to think about this. Even if you know you've got a city that's, let's say, one mile square, which I know is twice as big as it should be, if you've got several hundred, you know, hundred thousand, even just you know, one sixth of the army marching against you, hundred thousand people around the circumference of your city is not going to be something you're going to waste arrows and antagonize, you know, because there's going to be some fear there. And again, there's the fear of what what has been done. Egypt has fallen. I go, we don't really understand this. Egypt has fallen. All right, that was a big deal to them. If you know your history at all, Egypt was the first great empire of the world that we know of in, the, in, our, in our known world. And they owned all the Middle East, all of North Africa. Egypt has fallen, all right? Very similar to England having fallen back in the 1700s, you know, when it started dwindling away, except Egypt fell quickly. Uh, Russia has fallen. If you remember the day when the Iron Curtain fell and all of a sudden our big enemy is no longer an enemy. All right? But again, it was a different thing in, in that. This is Egypt. Egypt is gone. And the, and the God who's responsible for it is the God of the people who are outside our gates. How do we fight somebody that has destroyed the greatest kingdom that they had known? There's a great fear involved in this. You know, we go, well... You know, they would have just gone out and attacked them. No, you don't. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's something that there's a great fear element in there. And we see this coming up. And, and for six days, the Jews get up in the morning, march around the city, and go back to camp. 
And the people are looking at this, you know, probably thinking, what a crazy, what a crazy war plan this is. Who, who is their general right now? You know, well, <laughs> they're not realizing it's God. You know, and then <clears throat> during this time, seven priests bear the ark of the covenant, the the ark of the covenant, and seven trumpets are played as they go along. And these trumpets are shofars. If you know what a shofar is, that's a great big ram's horn, and they sound. Even to this day, the Jews sound it for their for their feast days and their and it was basically their call to worship. And during that time, it was their call for battle and everything. Priests are blowing the shofar, and that's the only noise. And we're going to see later they're commanded to not even speak to one another. And I think that's a really wise command because can you imagine? You're walking around the, 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 this uh, city and then go, what's wrong with Joshua? You know, all he's making us do is walk around the city. We walk around and we go back to camp. You know, you know, Joshua's really lost it. He was a good commander out there when he took us against all these armies, but uh, you know, he's really lost it. All he's making us do is walk around this, uh, walk around this city. He says God's what God told him to do, but can you imagine the murmuring that would have been going on if they were allowed to just speak? We know how much they murmured for 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> Uh, and their personality hasn't changed any just because they crossed the Jordan. Uh, though we don't see that same attitude so much on this side, but I think it's because it's not given out as much. And so they're going around this city, and it says, And it shall come to pass that you shall make a long blast on the ram's horn, and you shall hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. So here's the battle plan. On the seventh day, Joshua, march around the city four times, uh, seven times. Then the priest will give a long blast. That's what, a, that's what this means, a long blast, mighty, uh, prolonged. And then at that blast, everybody will yell. And this yell is that war cry that we've talked, that shout of triumph. It's the sound of, and we've talked many times about this, if you've lived anywhere near a large stadium or a professional stadium and on game day you hear the people cheering for their teams yelling for their teams and everything and we talked about it in Baltimore we lived uh, about a mile and a half from a college team and you could hear those guys yelling on Saturdays you know all over the place oh, yeah. you know you heard the cheers you knew when the team did well you knew when the team was was doing pad too sometimes you know the way the way the cheers were this is the type of cry he's talking about. Loud, triumphant battle cry. The city is ours. And God tells him the city will, walls will fall flat. And there's a lot of people that make a big deal out of this, and it is a big deal. The walls fell flat. They didn't, they didn't collapse. <clears throat> and this word here literally means to be without obstacle. Now, what that means, I don't know. Did God turn them to dust? Did he swallow them into the ground? I don't know exactly what he did, but the, the walls were not an obstacle when the children of Israel walked into the city. Now, how that is, I don't know. All I know is they went flat. <laughs> how God did that, I don't know. Could he, could he have just dissolved the atomic bond between all the atoms and dropped it flat? That's possible. Could he turn them into dust overnight? That's possible. That You know, do centuries worth of uh, millennial of work on them overnight? That's possible. 
Could he have made the ground swallow them? That's possible. And, you know, it really doesn't care. It doesn't matter to me how he did it. But they do know that Jericho has a spot where there was no wall. Sure, it's something spiritual. The reason he had him march around the walls is for them to understand that it was not them. Could be. See the wall. Pay attention to the wall. This is not, you know, and then watch what I'm going to do to it. Any number of things. God does his own sense of humor and the way he does things. Could have done it once and have it taken down. And, but you may be right. Part of it may be he wanted them to see how strong that wall is. You're not taking this wall without my help. It's not what you are going to do. It is what I am going to do. And again, this is what, what I said at the beginning. In our spiritual battle, it's not what we can do. It's what God can do. But he says, when you do all this, and this is just, they haven't even started anything at this point. They're just, this is God telling Joshua the game plan. Now, put yourself in Joshua's place. Okay, God, you want me to tell the people to do what? <laughs> okay, God, I thought we came here to conquer Jericho, and all you want to do is make us march around it. But God wanted them to understand it's him that was going to be the victor. All through the book of Joshua, we're going to see God is the victor. There's going to be a battle where they defeat the enemy. The enemy's running and, and hailstones fall on, fall on. And it says the hailstones killed more men than the army of, of Israel did. We're, we're going to see places where the hornets chase the enemy. We're going to see places where all kinds of things happen that God says, see, it's me. It's not you. Our job is just to go into battle and be obedient to God and let God do what it is he's going to do. All right. Verse 6, Now Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said unto them, Take up the ark and the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of, ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns passed on before the Lord, and blew with the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priest and blew... And the armed men went before the priest that blew the trumpets. And the rearward came after the ark, and the priests going on and blowing the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. All right, so here we are. We're now in the actual implementation of this plan. He goes first to the priest and says, okay, get the Levites to carry the ark. Remember, the, the Levites have to carry the ark. And nobody is to touch the ark. And this comes very important in other stories of the, in the Bible, but the ark was to be carried on poles borne by the Levites. Nobody was to touch it. The ark of the covenant. The only time that it was ever even close to being touched is when it was in the Holy of Holies and the high priest sprinkled the blood of the Yom Kippur sacrifice upon the ark. And that was once a year. And that was the closest anybody ever came to touching the thing. And here he says, priest, you're going to march in front of it. Pick seven of you that can blow the trumpets. Get the Levites to carry this thing. We're going to go march around the city. And the army went before them and the army went after them. Later on, we're going to see a time when the, the battle plan for God against a very strong army is to send the, send the ark first and then the, then the singers, and then let the army come behind them. How would you like to be the priest and the singers in that battle? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, guys, you get to go first. The army's going to stay behind you. And the enemy killed themselves. <laughs> <laughs> the singing was that bad. Yeah, I guess the singing was that bad. It scared him. <laughs> scared him. No, just the power. Just the power. You know, the power of God as He goes forward. You know, and here we see this, and Joshua says, "No talking, no shouting." You know, can you imagine the eeriness of having a large army just march around your city and nobody saying anything? <laughs> and you the the shock waits on the other side of there. All them people, all of a sudden, they're making noise. Yeah, there'd be a, it, something's different. Well, they already knew something was different when they started marching seven times, but we'll get to that too, you know. But that would be the big thing too. Well, here they are again. They're only going to march around the city, everybody off the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they on the seventh day they keep marching around. Everybody gets back up on the wall. You know, most of their people probably died when the walls collapsed. Because you've got to think about this. For six days, they walked once around the, the city and left. You know, and they're going, okay, they're, here they are. Uh, I kind of think about the MASH episode, 5 o'clock Charlie, where the plane comes in and drops his bomb. You know, they know he's coming. They know he's going to miss. And so after a while, nobody worries about him. You know, and... Yeah, you know, taking bets on how close he would, how far away he'd be from it. But, you know, but this is what, they're just going to march around the city again. Who cares? And on the seventh day, they're probably headed back down. And people go, hold it. They're going around again. Okay, everybody gets up on the wall. Okay. And they're doing it again. They're doing it again. But they're still not making a sound. They're not making any sound. They're not making any noise. They don't. There's no, no siege weapons. There's no, no battle rams. There's no uh, ladders that we see anywhere. There's, these crazy people are just marching around the city. So, kind of be an amazing thing. Verse 12, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn, before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went about with them. But the reward came after the ark of the Lord, and the priests going on and blowing the trumpets. And the second day they come to the city once and returned to the camp, so they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early in about the dawning of the day. So they're getting up a little earlier this day, because the other ones just said early. And this one says early at the dawning of the day, so the sun is barely coming up, and they start the walk. Now, this alone is going to make the people interested. Uh, hold it, they're, it's not the same time. They're already marching. What's different about today? What's different about today? And they compass the city about the, in that manner seven times. Only on that day they compass the city seven times. And again, let's figure that it's going to be about three and a half hours to march around the city seven, and a half, seven times, give or take. They say it was really long. It took them seven. You know, it's, I, I just cl- dawned on me. It seemed like they missed the seventh the day of Sabbath, you know, of rest. Somewhere they did. They skipped that day. Whether they're marching on the Sabbath because it's God's day and it's, everything's dedicated to God, it doesn't really tell us, but it's possible. But they did, they did march on the Sabbath day. So interesting game plan. It is that God told them to break their own law that he gave them because it's death to walk on the Sabbath day that far. And it, and it came to pass on verse 16, 
On the seventh time that the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein. And the Lord, and to the Lord only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from these accursed things, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. You shall, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet and, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and, and donkey, both the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and bring her out thence the woman and all that she has with as you swore unto. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out of, of all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and gold, the vessels of brass and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's household and all she had. And she dwelled in Israel even unto this day because she had hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So here we are at the battle. As Annie has pointed out, you know, it's, you know, a shout is all going to happen. You know, first off, they've, they've changed their game plan. They're not just marching around the city and going back to their camp. They're continuing to march around the city. That's going to be freaky enough in, in and of itself. You know, something's different about today. The, the <coughs> foreshadowing of what's going to happen. There's an, a, something different. And they march around and around. For three and a half hour, three and a half to seven hours, they march around the city, not saying a word. And as I said, I'm sure that the city walls gathered a huge crowd about this time. The, a large percentage of the people were probably on the walls watching these crazy people walk around the city. You know, what's go, what, what are they going to? What's what are they going to do next? You know, this is different. Then the horn shouted, sounded long and strong. And the people shouted, shouted the battle cry, and the walls fell down. They're not an obstacle. You notice one thing it tells you about, there's no obstacle for them to walk into. Obviously, whatever Rahab lived, because she was in the wall, there was one part of the wall that had to stand. Yeah. Can you imagine that all around this, build, all around this little lodging, flat, flat wall, and here's one wall <laughs> standing up with a scarlet thread hanging out of it. Because remember when the spy said, said, take this scarlet thread and hang it out your window so that we know which window is yours when we come back and that, so you'll be saved. And the very first thing that Joshua tells the people, he says, this city is cursed. Later on, he's going to say, let nobody build upon this city. And he says, everything is a curse. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, and anybody in her house, just as they had promised. And somehow, Rahab convinced her family to stay with her. Uh, 
this has got to be kind of a crazy thing because, you know, how do you keep a, the secret from the king that your house is the protected house? That when they conquer us, my house is going to be protected when she's invited her whole family in. Well, they obviously were good at keeping secrets. Yeah, but she had to be able to convince them even to come in the first place. Because think about Lot. Lot in Sodom had two unmarried daughters, his wife and himself, and it said that he had married daughters, plural, so there were at least four more people that should have been with him. And, I, and he couldn't convince his own family to leave Sodom. You know, kind of forced his daughters to because they were under, under his authority and had nowhere else to go. Uh, he could not convince his family, and yet here we have Rahab, who's not even a Jew or an Israelite, convincing her whole family to be in her house because Israel was going to win this battle when it made no sense for Israel to win this battle. And yet she can, she's able to convince her family, get in this house because this is the only way you're going to live. But you've, you've got to understand, I, my point on this more than anything else is just look at the power that and the faith that Rahab had and how she was able to convince a family that had no reason to, number one, believe that their city was going to be destroyed, and number two, believe that they would be spared even if they did go into her house. This is a lot. You know, how many people won't share the gospel because they're so afraid of being rejected that they just won't even share the gospel? We've got to learn to be bolder and share, share the gospel and tell people about Jesus. Just, you know, and the amazing thing about it, the more you do it, the more you find out people aren't going to bite your head off in the first place. Because that's usually, I guess, what we're afraid of. People are going to get after us and attack us for some reason. And Rahab's able to convince her whole family, get in here. Get in here. They're going to win this battle. I know, it, I know it looks like they're being crazy, but they're going to win the battle. Their God is going to give us. He, he, you should probably remind him, he dried up the Red Sea. He conquered the Ammonites. He conquered the, you know, all the Moabites. They conquered, uh, they crossed the Red Sea. Then the, Egypt was his choice. He probably reiterated all these things that their God had done. And you know, the great thing about Rahab is she's actually going to be in the line of Jesus Christ. She's going to get married to one of, the, one of the men of Israel, and she's going to be part of the line of Jesus. Joshua tells them, everything belongs to God. We're going to destroy everything. All the metals belong to God. You're going to go into the treasury, but everything else is going to be destroyed. They're going to burn everything. They're going to kill everything. And this is something that bothers a lot of people, that God told them to kill every man, woman, child, and animal. Why? We've covered this before in the past. The sin was so bad in this land of the promised land that everything was infected, literally infected. And we talked about this. Sexual activities ran so rampant that sexual diseases were prevalent during this period of time to an extreme. And we're talking about every sexual perversion you could possibly think of was practiced in Canaan, in that whole land of the Canaan, and not considered bad and even animals, bestiality was rampant. So God said, kill them all, kill everything. Don't let anything stand living. We're not gonna have anything that's going to infect you. We're not gonna have anybody who's going to get in behind you and, and bring you back to idols. Because remember, how did, how did Balaam end up having Israel being cursed? He said, he told Balak, send in the women and, and 
get hold of the men and then teach them to, to worship your gods. Seduce them and, and turn, turn them around, and that's what they did. And God cursed them, and s several tens of thousands of people died. Well, we already know what they did when Balak sent in the women of his people to tempt them. They fell. God already knows that we're weak. He knows that we, even to this day, are weak. How easy is it for us to fall into sin? Well, we all fall into sin every day. You know, anybody who wants to say that they have no, that it's not that they can withstand sin is pretty much lying, and they've already sinned just by telling you they can withstand sin. Everything is going to be killed in the city. Everything is going to be destroyed. The gold is going to be given. All the metals can be, are going to be given to God because they can be purified and put into the treasury. And this is important for us. This has been God's command all through the conquest of Canaan. They were to kill everybody. And again, it comes down to purifying, purifying, getting make, make sure there's no sexual diseases being prevalent. We see all of this out there that's, that's covered. And God's saying, destroy everything and I keep the gold. What's he actually doing? He's taking the first fruits offering. Okay, the Bible all through the times, God says the first fruit is mine. When the farmer harvested the crop, the first crop of the year went to God. Now, did it always go to God? No, it was supposed to have, but just like everybody, all, all people that didn't always do what they were supposed to. But you know, when you took that first fruit and gave it to God, you were really saying, God, we trust you to have a second and third harvest because we're giving you the, the first. And there's no guarantee that you're not going to have a flood come in that night and wipe out the crop or a locust swarm. But by giving him his first fruit, we're saying, God, we trust you. We trust you. And God's taken, here's your first victory. Here's your first victory in the promised land, and it's mine. I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. You know, because what is, we've covered this before, Part of the reward for the, the soldiers were that whatever wealth they came across in the battle was theirs. And they would, after battle, go and strip the enemy of all their valuable gold and silver and weapons and anything else, and they would take it from them, and that was part of their pay. Because they didn't get paid to be a warrior. Their pay was whatever you took. If you conquered a city, everything in the city went to the soldiers. Spoils, spoils of war. But that was your pay. So that's what encouraged people to go to war in those days. You went to war, and when, as long as you won and stayed alive, you got, the, you got the reward of whatever you found. And it says, and the people went straight up and took the city. And again, they're not, not having to climb through obstacles and everything. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword, but Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out, says, you, you guys, as soon as the walls come down, you guys go get, you go, you guys get Rahab. Why? Because they're the ones that knew where she was. <laughs> All right? Now, you know, at the same time, you think about this, the walls have fallen flat. It might make things a little hard, but they knew where the ribbon was. They knew where the scarlet thread was. I don't think, I don't remember. She married Solomon. So. And I wondered if one of those spies was him. Don't know. I'd have to go back. I don't remember. I don't know if, it, I don't think it ever named those two. I don't think it mentions the name. I looked. Okay. Well, then you've done more research into it than I have. <laughs> okay. I'm nosy. 
I had never thought about whether they had a name in the scriptures or not. And they went in and they brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had, and they that were of her kindred, and they left them without the camp. So as, as Mark pointed out, they were put outside the camp for multiple reasons, okay? You stayed outside the camp. Even the soldiers, when they come back from this battle, having touched dead things and bodies, are going to stay without the camp until they are purified. And that means at least 24 hours after you've seen the touch the dead person before you can go into the camp. Because you're not to bring diseases, you're not to bring, it was a way of being able to, to make sure that nobody was communicable, diseased or, or carrying disease from a dead body into, into the land. And so they're, they're put out without the camp. And it says, and they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver, gold, and vessels of brass and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her family's household and all that she had. And she dwelled in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers of Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. One simple act of faith. Have you ever looked at your life and seen how your life has turned drastically by just one simple act of faith? Hopefully the most important one is the day you get saved. Simple act of faith. Most of us, when we get saved, do not understand completely everything there is to know about salvation. We know that we deserve punishment. We know that, we, that we're a sinner and that we deserve that punishment and we trust that Jesus is the answer. Simple act of faith. And then over years, we get to learn how it's important and why it's true. You know, I know so much now that I'm going, there would be no other decision anymore. I couldn't think of any other decision but to trust Jesus. And then you think, you look at your life and say, this little act of faith, I just did this one little act of faith, and my life was changed. You know, have you ever had one of those moments where you just did something that made no sense whatsoever, and then watched how God has used it in a mighty way. You know, for some people, many pastors, it's the day that God calls them to the pastor and they go, okay, God, I, I surrender. And then watch what God does in their life as they take on their pastoring. You know, that one time that you say, yes, God, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to talk to this person about Jesus. And they actually accept Jesus as their Savior. I can tell you there's no greater thrill than to watch somebody accept Jesus Christ in their life and see the change on them as they, as they do it. I've done it so many times now. It's so wonderful to just see, you know, if you, you think about this, so many people have, you look in their eyes and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's no life. There's no joy. There's no activity. And then they accept Jesus Christ and all of a sudden, somebody's home. <laughs> somebody's home all of a sudden. You get to see this and you watch how God can change people. Even little physical things about them because he's come in to indwell them. And you go, yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. Look what God has done. And then you get to watch them as they grow in Christ, hopefully. And they grow and they learn about God. And they start walking faithfully with him. I still love it right now that my kids keep telling me, you know, I talk about this in church and everybody looks at me like, how do you know this stuff? You know, for us, 
in our family, it was day-to-day -day conversation. It was nothing, nothing spectacular. It wasn't me, you know, trying to give them huge preponderances of deep thoughts. It was just, this is what we talked about. You know, when you're discipled, you stand on somebody else's shoulders and you get to start where they started, where, they, where they're at now. And then you get to add to that. And I can't wait to see what my kids are going to do as they add to what they've learned and be able to start on my shoulders <laughs> and go forward from that spot rather than having to start from ground level. You know, are we doing that for people? Are there people in our lives that we're helping so that they can start at a higher level? For those of us who have grandchildren or nieces and nephews, we need to be teaching them. You know, I would have Thomas on my lap and we were singing Christian songs you know, together. Of course, he wasn't saying much, but you know, yeah, we were singing Christian songs and you know, I'm going, okay, you've got to, you're, you're going to have a lot to keep up with. You've got to, you've got to, got to know this. You know, but I was already speaking to him that he's got something to go for. Because he gets to start on his dad's shoulders, which are on my shoulders, which are on my dad's shoulders. So he's got to higher. He's going to get to start out higher than all of us, and be able to say, "This is so simple." You know, the amazing thing is, as you study God's word and you start tying it all together, it starts to make sense and it starts to be simple. And then you start building more stuff on top of that, and more stuff on top of that, and before long, you, you're, you know. You'll go out someplace and you'll talk to some other Christian from other, some other church and they're going, well, how are you learning all that stuff? How do you know all that stuff? And you're just thinking, well, I hear it every week. It's no big deal to me. You know, you think, you think this is special? Yeah. And, you know, we kind of get familiar with it. I do my best to train, it, train us up and teach us the word of God. And I'm doing, to me, it's just simple stuff I pass out. And it's like I said, you know, the day I taught that senior adult class, men's class when I was in my 30s, and I said something that I thought was so simple that everybody, you know, at least anybody who'd been in the church all their life would know. And I got stopped in my tracks and saying, what, you know, you need to explain that. I don't understand. And it's like, it was really sad to me that these guys that had spent their entire life in church didn't know the basics. You know, in Hebrews 6, there's a list that Paul puts in, a, in the basics. You know, the basics for him and, and his teaching. You know, let me go to that real quick because it's, it's a pretty amazing list. Or not Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews. I think, I think it's Paul, but probably should say whoever wrote it. A lot there. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, okay, principles, the foundation, the beginnings, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, the faith toward God, the doctrine of baptism, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are the things that the writer of Hebrews said. These are the basics. Everybody's supposed to know these. Now let's move past them. Now, you read that to many Christians in today's world, and they're going, uh, I'm not sure I understand all those things. And the writer of Hebrews was saying, let's get beyond the basics. Let's, let's, get, to the, let's get to the meat. And this is the thing for most teachers that are really into God's word. We have to be so careful that we don't take people so deep into the meat that we forget to keep laying a foundation and helping people get to where they can handle the meat. 
We had to put some, some uh, potatoes out on the plate. We need to put some cereal on the plate. We need to put some milk on the plate so that everybody gets fed. And it's very important that we do that. But you know, at the same time, it's our job as a, as a church to help grow beyond and say, we're ready for the next step. We're ready for the next step. Good pastors will always teach their people to grow. Pushing, pushing this, giving them something new to learn. Not, not made up, not, not invented, but taking you to the next level, the next level. I have been studying God's word now for 46 years, and you know what? I still don't know it all. <laughs> now, I, I wish I did and sometimes, but then I'd have no desire to study it if I knew it all. You know, it is wonderful to be studying and go, wow, this is really interesting. I never thought about this. I, wow, God, this is amazing. And I've already shared with you so many times. I'll be reading through the scriptures, and I'll, and I'll come across the scripture, and I've read the Bible. I try to read the Bible every year. And so many times I come across the uh, scripture, and I'll actually talk to God and go, God, when did you put that verse in there? It wasn't here last year. I know it wasn't here last year or the year before or the year before. Now, I know, in reality, I know it was there, but I wasn't ready to see that verse. And then God says, here it is. This is the verse for you today. This is the verse for you today. Pay attention to it. And as we grow, these verses will jump out. As you read the Bible more times, all of a sudden things will start tying together and you're going, oh, I remember this incident from some other place. Or, oh, yeah, I remember this person they're talking about. Oh, yeah, I remember this. And it makes things come alive and different as you're reading through. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this isn't, this isn't just words on paper. This isn't just a story. And always remember, the most important thing about being in God's word is it's not just a story. It's the truth. You know, and if we don't believe it, then the problem isn't God's. It's not the words. It's ours. <laughs> you know, I, when I look at it and say, God, that's really hard to believe. Well, God says, well, that's fine. You just believe it anyway. <laughs> believe it anyway. All right, God, you teach me how. The man, the blind man's, Lord, I want to be healed. Help my unbelief. Because we all have unbelief on, at things at certain times. And we need to be able to say, God, help my unbelief. I want to believe God. Help me to fully believe. And this is something that's important. How much blessing do you want from God? It tells us that all the riches of God are ours as his children. And that's not just physical blessings. That is health blessings and psychological blessings and sociological blessings and, and all the blessings that come along with that. Do we dwell with his blessings? Or do we think that he's cheap? And, and, and you know, God, I want this. And he says, okay, you can have a small, half an eyedropper full. Oh, you got too much. You can't have anything more now for, for years because you got, you got two drops You've got to wait for years. But that is not our God. He wants to bless us as his children. How many of us want to look at our children and say, nope, you can't have anything. Now, we'll feed you once a week whether you're hungry or not. That's not our attitude with our kids. All of us want to see our kids do better than we do. We want to give them blessings if we're at all able to do it. Sometimes to the point of spoiling them if you have enough... <laughs> Bless, uh, things to bless them. But you know, our God is no less apparent than we are. He wants to bless us, his children. Now the one thing he knows is that most of us can't handle material wealth. 
You know, and this is something that's kind of interesting. If you read the stories about people who get large sums of money, whether it's a lottery or a, or a lawsuit or whatever, most of them within a year or two will tell you they wish they had never, ever gotten the money because they've wasted it. They've used it for all the wrong things. All of their family have their hands out. All, their, all the friends they didn't know they had have their hands out. All the family you never knew you had have your hand, their hands out until you run out of money. And then they find out that they're worse off than they were before it all started. And they don't know how to use it and they don't know how to keep it. God knows that most of us cannot handle wealth so he doesn't give it to us. And Oh, yep, athletes sudden wealth for them. They come, they come out of po- well, they come out of poverty, and all of a sudden they have wealth. You know, it's probably the same. But not all movie stars come out of po- you know, not as many movie stars come out of poverty. Yeah, there's little little more benefit if they're coming out of a little more idea of how to handle money. And if they come out of a wealthy family, it's not a problem at all to them. But most people that don't have money don't know how to handle money and they end up in trouble. And God knows that most Christians will do that. Now, every once in a while, you'll have somebody like the founder of Caterpillar who gives away 90% you know, to God and kept 10% or J.C. Penney or Sears and Roebuck. Those guys gave away to God more money and they became millionaires and they kept giving to God millions of dollars. And so... You know, they've got to think about this. If they were a millionaire, that meant they gave away at 90%, $9 million. You know, so they, they were very faithful to God, and God kept blessing them because they honored him. Uh, Abraham was a very wealthy man, but he honored God and gave God and gave God and gave God, and God just kept giving back to him. You know, most wealthy people, and it's a sad stat, that the poor, a poor person is more likely to tithe than a wealthy person. And it makes sense if you've ever made an auto, you know, any kind of money. You know, when, you're, when you're a poor person and your check is $300 for the entire week, you know, it's only $30. What can, you, what can you really buy with $30? You're the wealthy person and you've just made $10,000 and your tithe is, is $1,000. And it's like, wow, $1,000, I would pay my house. It would pay the insurance. It would pay, pay the car bill. You know, it would pay for a vacation. It would pay for, you know... And it, you understand when you think about it. And people start going, God, you really don't need $1,000, do you? <laughs> you know, God, you really, I mean, $30 was no, nothing, God, but you, do you, God, I'll give you $30. You don't need, you don't need 1000 yeah. And that's how most people end up thinking. People get short-sighted. We all get short-sighted. We all do. We all get very short-sighted about things. And we, most everybody lives in this moment in a negative way, not in, the, not in the positive way. They just live in, this is what I have now. They're not really thinking about what's in the future because they're thinking about what I didn't have, now I have it. And right now we are in a me first generation. You know, we've, talk, we've seen this, you know, try driving down any major highway in any, in any large city where in the old days you, people knew how to merge. You know, you'd let each other have that 10 feet of space in the, in the road and let, you know, and the road kept moving. Now, 
you're going to have an accident because this guy just can't let you have 10 feet ahead of him because he's got to have his 10 feet that's going to save him one tenth of a second in time getting where he's going. Uh, you know, uh, we see it on Black Friday you know, when people are mobbing each other to get to the, the five items that are on sale, you know, that they just have to have it. And if anybody else gets it, you know, they're going to just die. You know, if I don't get that thing, I'm just going to die. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I've got to get this or I'm just going to die. I've got to have it. I've heard people say various you know, things like that. It's all part of this me generation that says, I've got to have what I want now. And it's kind of an interesting world where the world is telling, telling you everything, you know, get what you want. And God says, let others have it. Let them be first. And you know, there's so much peace in letting others go first and not having to be the one that has to have everything. And then God turns around and blesses you anyway. It's an amazing thing how God blesses you when you put him first and let others gain. And we're going to take these last two verses, even though we're a little old. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed is a man before the Lord that rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation therein with his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates thereof. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noise throughout the country, and I wish I could remember which king this was. But there was a king who built this, tried to rebuild Jericho, and his oldest son died in the laying of the foundation, and his youngest son died when they put the gates up. Oh, after the first and his youngest, yep. when he set up his gates. Yeah, so, and I can't remember who it was. It's, we'll get to it eventually. That's a prophecy. It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy, and it did already come true, that a person paid with the lives of two of his sons when he rebuilt Jericho. Interesting. And I didn't think we were going to get quite this far today. Otherwise, I would have done the research on which king it was. I'll find it out. But, you know, we want to keep this in mind. God wants our obedience. He wants our faith. And then he will do the mighty work. And God is wanting to do things for us. All we have to do is have the faith to watch him do it. Learn to forgive the person passing you. Let them in. You got to forgive them for wanting to do the pass, you know, and let them go. You know, and it makes you feel better if you give somebody a break. All right. Uh, oh, you. H I E L. Emphasis on enjoy. Hi, L. Okay. You have a parallel in yours somewhere? What 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 book did? First uh, Kings sixteen thirty four. Okay. All right. First Kings sixteen thirty four. All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you do love us and care for us. We ask that you show us what it is you would have us to do each day and and guide and lead us as we go about your business and help us to just desire more for you, Lord, and to just ask that you're a father who wants to bless and just ask you for what it is you would have. And we just thank you. Help us guide us and lead us into what you'd have us to do this week. In Jesus' name, amen.